Welcome, everyone, and good evening. Very pleased to see you all here for the first lecture in this series on Buddhist lists. Um, I know some of you. Um, I would just like to, as a brief introductory note for myself, how many of you um, have never read any portions of the sutras? Buddhist sutras. All right. No problem, don't worry. Just for my own educational background. Um, most people coming into contact with Buddhist literature outside traditional Buddhist traditions are struck by the fact that Buddhist literature, Buddhist tradition is full of lists. And very soon one gets the impression that Buddhism has a numbered list for basically everything. You know, three jewels, the Four Noble Truths, five precepts, five aggregates, five hindrances, six sense fears, seven leaves of awakening, eightfold path, ten courses of action, ten fetters, twelve for chain of the causal relationships co-arise, the dependent co-arising, whatnot. I can, I can continue, there, there are more. Um, and so at some point one starts asking oneself, what's the point of all these lists? And the, the speakers in this series will introduce you to some of the lists that I just named. There are many others. And just as a, as a, as a side note, the community, IMSB, has created a wonderful resource on Buddhist lists, and it's available on the IMSB website. If you go to the website and click on the resources tab, um, then, or is it, it's under teachings, the teachings tab, then you'll find a whole list of lists. Um, and this is, the, it was a wonderful effort by the community, and Shaila and I edited this. Um, summaries. So um, another very helpful resource for you if you'd like to continue and reflect on those lists. So um, it's pretty much obvious that the, a lot of the scriptural materials, the sutras, and then the later texts as well, preserve these lists and that some of them are very significant and, and that the, the tradition builds around them. But why are there, I mean, major list, I mean, things like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path that you can see everywhere. But why are there so many other lists? What's the point, what's the significance of the list in this tradition? And that's the question that I'd like to explore in today's introductory meeting. A fair number of scholars, of writers, have drawn attention to the fact that the Lists are very useful as mnemonic devices, right, for memorization. It's fairly clear that the proliferation of, of lists is a device for memorizing the texts. And this is especially important for a tradition like early Buddhism, which is an oral tradition. That is a tradition that was composed orally and handed down orally for generations and only after many years, and we're talking hundreds of years, was eventually um, fixed in the form of written texts. Okay? So these books that we have today were not available for the first hundred years after the Buddha's death. All, the, all, all we had were just monks and nuns who recited the texts. The various communities around the Indian subcontinent who recited the text. Now, now think, think about the challenges in such a setting of preserving the tradition. Think about the, the challenge of giving a talk, a Dharma talk in such a setting, right? Without a computer, without pen and paper. Think about yourself. What would you do if you had to compose a discourse on the Dharma? So obviously the list is very useful, a useful device both for the speaker and the audience to remember and follow. 
However, we have to remember that in the Indian context, and we're talking about Theravada Buddhism, right, in the Indian tradition, Indian culture in general is an oral tradition. Buddhism is not the only tradition within the Indian context that started as an oral tradition. And yet, there's no other Indian tradition that puts so much emphasis and seems to enjoy so much the presence of lists. It seems that the lists are especially dear to Buddhism within the Indian context. So it's really interesting to start kind of peeling what stands behind that significance, and that's what I hope to do today. And the best place to start this process is um, just by considering how lists proliferate, how they kind of reproduce themselves. And I'd like to do that by reference to one of the major lists, which you're gonna, you, you will hear about more later on, which is the Four Noble Truths, right? Everybody who comes in contact with Buddhism, perhaps the first thing we hear is about the Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths are, are extensively introduced throughout the suttas, but I'd like to read to you a short extract um, that is a very representative way of explaining the Four Truths. It's from the Samyutta Nikaya, the four book, fourth book of the Samyutta Nikaya, and it goes like that. It's the Buddha speaking, and he says, this, monks, is the noble truth that is suffering, dukkha. Birth is suffering, growing old is suffering, illness is suffering, sorrow, grief, pain, unhappiness, association with what is not liked is suffering, dissociation from what is liked is suffering, not to get what one wants is suffering, as we all know. In short, the five aggregates of grasping are suffering. Okay? That's the first truth. This, monks, is the noble truth that is the origin of suffering. That thirst for repeated existence, accompanied by delight and passion, and delighting in this and that, namely, thirst for the object of sensual desire, thirst for existence, thirst for non-existence. Okay, are you starting to compose a little list here? This, monks, is the noble truth that is the ceasing of suffering, the complete fading away and ceasing of this very thirst. It's abandoning, relinquishing, releasing, and letting go. And this, monks, is the noble truth that is the way leading to the cessation of suffering, the noble eightfold path. Namely, right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So already you see that we have lists within lists, right? Let's just talk a little bit about those proliferating lists. And, and actually, you can almost draw like a diagram, a tree, and, and see how one list emanates or begets another one, and another one, and another one. And they, at some point, you'll see that they become kind of circular also, because they refer back to each other. So I'll try to keep this very brief, and I, I don't want to go into the details of all these lists, but just as a, just to draw your attention to what's going on here. So we have the Four Noble Truths. The first truth about dukkha, suffering, is explained in terms of the five aggregates, right? The five aggregates of suffering, of, of grasping. And these five aggregates are form, feeling, recognition, volitions, and consciousness. Now, form is then explained in terms of another list, a list of four elements. Feeling is expressed in terms of a list of three types of feelings. Recognition, a list of six types of recognition, six classes of recognition. Um, Volitions, three kinds, 
that you can then multiply into six kinds. Consciousness, a very, very important category. Six classes. All these five aggregates can be explicated in terms of six sense spheres, 12 elements, 18 sense elements. And for those of you who have heard a little bit about Abhidhamma, in terms of hundreds and thousands of Dharma categories. And that was just the first truth. The second truth about the um, origin of dukkha, the origin of suffering, is about thirst. But there are three types of thirsts. And then there are three types of cessation of that thirst. And I'd like to go to the, to quickly jump to the fourth noble truth about the path, right? The cessation of suffering is explained in terms of the, the eightfold noble path. Right view. Right view is explained as right understanding of the four noble truths. So we have kind of a circular relationship. Right thought means three wholesome or skillful types of thought. Right speech is explained in terms of a list of four kinds, and so on and so forth. Let's go to the eighth, the eighth, the last element, right mindfulness. Well, that's the, the, it's not the last, the seventh uh, limb or the seventh element here, right mindfulness. Right, mindfulness is very interesting, right? It's deeply connected with what we do every day, right? Meditation. Right, mindfulness is expressed in terms of four applications of mindfulness. And if you'd like to explore further that analysis, the source is the Satipatthana Sutta or the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, one of the very basic texts on meditation. Four applications of mindfulness. Contemplation of body, contemplation of feeling, contemplation of mind, and contemplation of dharma. Contemplation of body? Ooh, we have lots of lists here. Mindfulness of breathing. Four ways of it's called four ways of going, but it's actually four ways, four types of posture, bodily postures. As you can see, very, very closely connected to meditation, right? How do we sit while we meditate? How do we walk while we meditate? And so on and so forth. 31 parts of the body that we can meditate on. Various elements, various ugliness meditations. That's how they called ugliness meditations. Um, imagining comparing the, the body to a corpse, to a dead corpse in various different kind of ugly states, and so on and so forth. And contemplation of dharma, ooh, that's, that's going to generate a lot of lists. I just mentioned briefly before various elements, and these elements are called dhammas in, blue, in plural. So the contemplation of dharma, in capital D, the contemplation of teaching, is broken up in terms of the contemplation of dharmas, these little factors. I'm going to say a few more words about shortly. So easy to see that what we have here are basically not just simple lists, but meta lists, lists of lists. We have what we can call a matrix of a whole series of, of further lists. And so we know where, where we begin with the Four Noble Truths, but we don't really know how we end. There are lots of different options. I can start with the first truth and find myself ending up with something completely different, and somebody else who starts with the same first noble truth will analyze it differently and end up with a different list. 
So we know how to begin, but we don't really know how, to, how we end up necessarily with these lists. And there is a sense that it's more than just memorizing. Of course, yes, these lists are very helpful in summarizing and memorizing doctrinal teachings. But there's more to it, something that is even more interesting. And that second point is about how to grasp the, the internal structure of the Dharma. Because you see that the point is not, there is a sense that it's more than just listing the lists. The point is about understanding how they fit together. All these lists that we just mentioned, they, they fit together. They form a pattern, a certain structure. And the point is to understand how these things are related. What pattern is created here? They, these lists form the inner workings of the Dharma, as it were, of the teaching. And the point is to understand how this process of the teaching is applied to our life process, to our the, the, the lived experience, to our everyday experience, to our meditative experience. So I'd like to suggest here that the lists are significant not only as an aid in memorization of the text, but also as part of the practice, Buddhist practice. Now, this process happens at a very early stage. The, the tradition focuses on particular groups of lists, but then draws up composite lists, very complex lists out of them, like from the factor of right mindfulness, we will end up with a list of 37 factors that contribute to awakening, for example. So there is a very clear shift towards multiplication of those lists. Now, as what I'm drawing to is that they're not just a summary, but part of the practice of understanding Buddhism in its own terms. In undertaking this task of compiling the, the complex list, those matrices, the early Buddhist tradition is not satisfied with just listing items. It starts to analyze each factor starts to analyze those lists. So this is a kind of a new trend that emerges fairly early. We can see that in the sutras, and then it continues later on. Analyzing lists, not just in order to summarize the teachings, but also to provide a very detailed, comprehensive taxonomy of the mental and physical factors, states, processes that make up our world. And these factors, they are psychophysical events, processes. They are called dhammas in plural. So you get the sense that to memorize the dhamma in capital D, the teaching, is to know how dhammas in multiple work. Okay? There's a very famous statement that says, he who knows dhamma knows dhammas, in plural. This um, trend starts fairly early. We see that in the sutras, but it continues very clearly in the, the literature that makes up the third basket of the Pali Canon, the Abhidhamma Pitaka. These are the texts of the Abhidhamma tradition. Abhidhamma meaning the further teaching, the higher teaching. Um, and that's what the Abhidhamma scholars, these monks, monks and nuns that, that comprise this tradition, that make up this tradition. That's what they do. They analyze 
lists, doctrinal teachings, factors. Now, they start using a new word for those lists, the word matika. Matika. Which we can translate as matrix. They start creating a matrix, matrices of those lists. The word matika is very interesting, actually. It comes from an ordinary Sanskrit word that means mother, matra, mother. That's the origin of matika. So, and this meaning, mother, seems to inform the use of the term matika by the, the Abhidhamma tradition in, in these Buddhist texts. Because rather than a condensed summary, which is what oftentimes is the translation that is offered for this term, a mat, matika is not just a summary. It's more like a creative seed that generates, begets a whole doctrinal realm. It's it, what generates the building blocks for constructing a whole expo exposition or text or basically a whole way of analyzing what we experience. So it's a, ve it's a very creative process. It's not just a static summary. It's a an open-ended process, just as we saw before, that the lists can lead you to different routes. It's an open-ended um, process. But then, what's the point of it all? That, that's the question that I'd like to pose. Why is it so important? Why do we need all these matikas? When we um, observe these lists as they appear in Abhidhamma texts, and some of you have done that already, we get pretty much I mean, puzzled by, by the fact of what, what's the point of all these lists and enumerations and analysis? Isn't it all kind of a little bit out of control? Is that what the Buddha really meant? When is that what the Buddha really wanted us to do? To analyze and go through all those lists? But let's remember that there is a very interesting connection between these analytical enterprise and what lies at the heart of Buddhism. Buddhist lists are born out of analysis, breaking up. That is, breaking up the whole into parts. And this is something very, very dear to the heart of Buddhism from its inception. Because remember, Buddhism teaches us that our disease, our trouble, is that we emotionally and intellectually grasp at and, and fix a world of experience. Right? The truth about suffering is about Aggregates, five aggregates of grasping. The disease starts from the fact that we grasp at things and fix those elements that we find. We fix our world. But our world is not fixed. Rather, everything changes. Nothing is constant. Nothing stays without change. So... The trouble is that from something that is fluid and constantly changing, we make up, we fabricate something that is static and solid, but it's not. And then we get disappointed when we find out that it's not. So ultimately, according to this process, our hope is to see through this state of affairs. We have to understand how this process works, how this process of making up, fabrication, 
works, and we have to liberate ourselves from that process. How do we do that? Buddhist tradition suggests that we do that by breaking up the, the apparently solid world that we build for ourselves. So in a way, we can, in philosophical terms, we can call this deconstruction. Buddhism offers us a way into deconstruction of our, what we perceive to be a solid world, but it's not. Therefore, sometimes the texts suggest that we analyze our world, that we break up the world in terms of five aggregates, or six, six sense spheres, or 12 sense faculties, or 18 elements, or whatever. You get the sense that there are multiple perspectives, different ways, actually endless ways of breaking up because it all depends on the perspective that we, we take each time. Of course, the danger that lies here is that when in this attempt to break up and analyze, we find these components, these factors, bits and pieces, and we start to reify them. We start to say, okay, well, we have the, the five aggregates. These five aggregates are the solid elements which makes up the self. Great, so we found something static. Within that process, we have something that is permanent. These five aggregates is what makes up the self. But that's not the case. The point is that you can continue endlessly to break up. And the number can change. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. So one particular tradition will tell you that there are 89 factors and, one, and some other tradition can say that there are 101 factors. That's not the point. I mean, they can, of course, they will argue about it. But that's not the point. The point is to realize that no particular way of analyzing can ever be final. There are always numerous ways to break up because ultimately nothing is constant. Everything changes. All these factors are dynamic. So this indefinite expansion based on the matikas, on those lists and composite lists, is a reminder to everyone, to us, that it's just of the nature of things to shift, change, and we can divide them however we like. So it's true that some of, the, some of and there is an aspect of this whole enterprise that is kind of dry. You can say it's boring. If you look at lists in the sutras, or of course if you look at lists in the Abhidharma texts, you'll get the sense that it's kind of an artificial attempt to analyze. And many, many critics have pointed to the fact that it's a kind of a scholastic, um, dry proliferation of the tradition that is kind of getting far from what the Buddha taught us. But let's remember the context of this whole enterprise, of this whole analysis. The context is within the setup of, of trying to understand how the mind works, how our experiential world is made up, especially while we observe it in meditation. Right? That's what we do when we meditate. We observe how the mind works. And that's the whole point of this whole analysis to help us understand how the mind works. So, for example, when a certain text, like some Abhidhamma text, suggests that a single moment of consciousness, whoops, 
just passed. A single moment of consciousness, ordinary consciousness, I'm not talking about meditation, ordinary consciousness involves at least, if not more, 56, maybe more, 56 types of short-lived events, dhammas. Think about it. Every single moment of consciousness can be broken up and you can enumerate the factors that make up this moment, consciousness moment. You will find at least 56 elements, perhaps more. So you can say, well, what's the point? But that also is a wonderful reminder, first, of the richness of our experience. Think about that. Every single moment of consciousness is so rich, is comprised of at least a, an array of 56 factors. Wouldn't be curious to know what these 56 are? Of course you will. <laughs> and so it's a reminder of the complexity of experience, but also kind of a, a, an urge to understand to perceive the subtlety, that subtlety of the process. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that we cannot just come from outside the tradition and criticize these lists and what the texts try to do from an outsider's perspective. We have to try to understand what's, what's going on from within the tradition. And to do that is to at least make the attempt to confront the, the, the compilers of these texts in their own terms, to try to understand what they are, attempt, what they are attempting to get at. And, and that means to allow those lists to provoke in us the a state of, of what the texts will call mindfulness, right? Aren't we all here to cultivate mindfulness? That's why we come here every week. That's why we develop our practice, to cultivate mindfulness. What I'd like to suggest to you this evening is that this whole attempt of making, up, of making the lists is about cultivating mindfulness. And we, as people who come in contact with Buddhism and, and are trying to understand the tradition, at least need to give that tradition a chance by understanding these, these lists and their significance in terms of their relationship to cultivating mindfulness. Now, do you know what the Pali term is for mindfulness? Sati. Sati. When I say mindfulness in this context, you can, some of you may, might have read about mindfulness in all kinds of books, I don't know, all kinds of resources. When, when we say mindfulness in this context, we mean a, an, an enhanced presence of mind, but specifically attentiveness to objects of experience, to the objects of, of our experience. That's really, really important to understand, that it's always about perceiving an object. It's going to be really important to this whole process of breaking up and analyzing. So mindfulness is heightened attentiveness to the objects of our experience. And the, the Pali term for mindfulness is sati. But sati comes from the Sanskrit word Smriti, which means memory or memorization. It's actually more the active sense of memorization rather than the, the content of, of memory. So it's the act of memorization. The point is that the matikas, the lists, provide a clue to this relationship, very interesting relationship between memorization and mindfulness, between sati and smriti. And 
this is where also we, we, we need to take into account the yet another dimension in which the matikas, these lists, serve the purpose of Buddhist meditation. Remember that we were talking before about an oral tradition. The texts, whether we, these are the Nikayas or letter texts in the canon, Abhidhamma texts, they are not meant to be read from beginning to end. They are meant to be recited. Right? So in a way, these lists, these matikas, you can treat them like as, as chanting manuals. They can be chanted. That's what Abhidhamma, monks used to do. That's what they still do in monasteries. They chant these lists. So there is a sense that it's that there is a very strong performative aspect here. You perform the list. You don't read the lists. In reciting, in performing these very complex lists, matikas, you have to keep awake, right? You can't just shift your attention or fall asleep, right? And, and this is within the context of meditation. You sit there in your retreat, during your retreat, and you chant those lists. And if you fall asleep or just let your attention shift to something else, you will quickly find out that you lost track of what's going on. Where, where, what's going on? Where, where am I? Where, what's going? Is this the factor in what? What's with the four noble truth, or are we now in the eightfold path, or the five limb aggregates, or the seven limbs of awareness, or what, what's going on? Just if you lose your attention to one moment. So one has to be awake. Of course, there is an interesting connection between being awake and awakening. But it's more than that, right? You have to memorize the lists, but it's not just for the purpose of learning the lists by heart, summarizing the Dharma. It's about the process of cultivating mindfulness because the lists themselves are here part of the practice. This is how you cultivate the heightened awareness to the objects of experience. As an example, and, and just so that we will not get the impression that this is a dry process for, for someone from within the tradition, if somebody um, chants the, the list of, about the faculty of concentration, samadhi, the faculty of samadhi, it may sound to us something really dry and boring, but remember that samadhi is quite fascinating in Buddhist tradition because that list will beget a list of four meditations or four states of absorption, jhana, right? Shala is going to offer a whole course on jhanas. And every one of those jhanas is explicated in terms of very vivid and evocative similes and metaphors that, that speak to the, the students within the tradition. So it's far from being dry from, for somebody who really understands what's going on. And according to these texts, the Nikayas and then the Abhidhamma texts, these jhanas, these meditative states of absorption, are calm and comforting and full of joy, and they are present in every moment of ordinary consciousness. And then one starts to ask oneself, so what is the difference between the awakened mind and the ordinary mind? If such beautiful states are present in every type of ordinary consciousness, then what's the difference between a Buddha and myself. And that's a very, very important interest for the tradition to distinguish the awakened mind from the ordinary mind. 
Now, can you try to see how we get from the, con- the interconnections between the lists and memorization and keeping awake and mindfulness. So, to summarize, what I'd like to suggest is that, yes, of course the lists are a mnemonic device. They help memorize the, the, the tradition, the text. They summarize, but they're not just summaries. They're more than summaries. They are recited. They are part of the practice. And they inspire a sense of cultivating insight, wisdom. Ultimately, their purpose is to lead one on the way of cultivating mindfulness. I'll stop here and the next few weeks, you'll have an opportunity to cultivate your mindfulness through learning in greater detail some of those lists. Thank you. If you have any questions, we have some time for comments, questions. Yeah. Uh, My understanding is the public canon we talked about, and there's also a different canon for the Chinese. Mm -hmm. So how how well are the lists preserved there? There are substantial differences. There are three canons, the Pali, the Chinese, and the Tibetan canon. And there are some substantial differences between them, but lists are present in all of the three canons. So this is something that characterizes Buddhism from its very beginning and continues on in all the different Buddhist traditions. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, so I heard uh, the act of memorization is actually one closer to the concentration. And so I'm curious is that, I mean, I know concentration and mindfulness go together, uh, but is, is it the learning part of um, learning the list different from reciting them in that way? What do you think? Um, they, they are very, very closely related, obviously. But I think that they part ways um, within the context of meditation. And that there is a very strong sense in which the, the learning, this learning, has to tr- transform itself into something more psychological. How you observe what goes on in each and every moment, and how you keep your concentration and focus on each and every object of consciousness. And just as a short reference for everyone else, according to this tradition, we can only perceive one object in each and every consciousness moment. Right? It seems to us that we are multitasking. It seems to us that we are, we are very, very skillful. We can multitask and pay attention to many, many different things at the same time. But that's not the case according to Buddhist analysis. In every single consciousness moment, there is only one object that we can perceive. And that means that to cultivate mindfulness and concentration is to be able to notice that particular object. Try to think what it means. Yeah. Please. In the word, in the idea of memorization that you're using, does that also permit the memorization as committing to memory? Mm-hmm. Memorization as using the memory to bring up things to remember, to remember. That's right. That and there's also a dimension of um, connecting things, understanding how they are related one after the other. And all these dimensions actually are included in the concept of sati. The tradition actually offers an analysis of sati, and there are various elements that, that 
are included in, in the explication of what sati means, and, and these are some of the uh, references that are being made. Yeah. Yeah. So are you saying that the memorization of this leads to deeper and more discrete experience and absorption? I'm saying that the memorization is, is very closely related to that process. That um, I'm kind of looking for a way to go deeper. This looks like yeah, one of the many things. Yeah. Um, the way is to understand the nature of things. It makes the focus more discreet. Yes. Very discreet, analytical cultivating the ability to focus and 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 yeah and f- focus and and not lose attention being able to grasp each and every object but not b- get confused by the fact that these are all dynamic changing processes these are not fixed elements that's why, yeah, and that's why there are so many of them. And that's why they can be analyzed in various different ways. Yeah, James. So what's your favorite list? <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see, should I really answer that question? Um, I, I actually have several, <laughs> I have several various favorite lists, but um, I, I'm really fond of the, the list of the 37 factors that contribute to awakening. Bodhi Pakya Dhammas. <laughs> What's a good source for that? For the lists in general or oh, for... Oh, there's a whole book about it by Rupert Gethin. Yeah. What's it called? It's called The Buddhist Path to awareness, I think, but it's it's just about the the subtitle is the 37 dhammas that contribute to awakening. Yeah. So um, the act of breaking down a moment into its constituents, it's a way of analysis, right? But in everyday life, when you live, you can't go about being analytical about every moment of concentration. You know, say you have you run into an engine and of course you know you know that the fire to crack the engines and you can't be analyzing it. But you have to live it. Right? You have to live your life. Um, and you can't break down every moment according to all this list. Mm-hmm. So how do you like you know there's this act of breaking down mm-hmm. the act of unification. Yeah all the values that's in the list, right? So, so what is the opposite of this breakdown and how do you live this breakdown? Yeah, um, that, that's actually a very good question. Try, how would, be, would it be to actually live each and every moment according to the Abhidhamma analytical way? We probably all get kind of mentally ill at some point. <laughs> but... <laughs> What you're talking about is, is basically the fact that we have to generalize in order to be able to carry through our days, right? We have to make generalizations. There's actually a very beautiful story by Borges about a guy who didn't have the ability to make generalizations. So basically when you read the story, you get the sense that this is someone who actually lives each and every moment of his life according to this Abhidhamma way. And um, eventually what happens to him he, is that he, he cannot go out of his, his house because he perceives so many different objects and, and he can't generalize. So every single object basically becomes kind of so obtrusive to, to his senses that he, he has to live in a dark room with the windows shut and not leave the room because every single stimulation we get so many different perceptions. So obviously we can't all live that way. But the point is that, yes, we have to generalize, but we also have to understand 
what the, the process that makes up our experience. So yes, we cannot go every single moment of our life and, and start breaking up every single moment like that. But we have to understand what makes up this process of, of unsatisfactoriness. What's the source of how we perceive things? What makes us react in the way we, we react? What makes us behave? Right? We behave in various ways in, by speech, bodily behavior, speech acts, mindful acts. So the point is to make us cultivate deeper understanding of those processes. Right. I mean, so there's understanding, you know, like I do it at sports, right? so you'll see it many times. Mm-hmm. And there are these very well-understood ways of playing tennis, you know, how to use forehand. Yeah. But when you play, because you're not, you know, thinking, I mean, it's kind of degraded into into the play. Yeah. And um, initially you practice, you know, and then it comes naturally. So is, is it right to say that the act of breaking it down helps you to integrate it into practicing mindfulness? I think so, yeah. The act of breaking it down helps you realize how whatever it is, whatever process it is, actually how, how it's made up. Yes, so the tennis stroke is made up of various bits and pieces, and when you start analyzing what's going on there, you can improve. But it wouldn't be an intellectual No, it's not. Does the joy have something to do with how it's lived out? Like, I know that when it gets broken up, the joy seems to be experienced. But there's a power behind that. Yeah. To living out the day. That's right. So... There, there is wisdom, right? Wisdom is part of the process, cultivating wisdom. But it's not just, it's not limited to just intellectual learning, right? It's, a, it's something that has strong psychological aspects, the insight into the, the practical way of, of living. So it's not just mere intellectual learning. All right. Thank you, everyone. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.